0: So do we have any, um, any runners and walkers here who participated in the, in their, the walk and run this morning? Anybody? A couple of you? Thank you for doing that. Um, I know there were a lot of those runners in the, uh, the second service, but um, I wasn't able to participate, not because I'm a big runner, but um, a very dear friend of mine uh, died this past July uh, from cancer and uh, we had a team running on his behalf and it was pretty cool to see them out there. But, um, so anyway, thanks for participating. Um, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> and as most of you know, we're in a series right now called Two Ways to Live, uh, and in it we're looking at what Scripture refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, throughout the study, we have been um, pressing both the idea and the importance of personal spiritual assessment, you know, taking an honest look at our lives and how, how we're living them. Because way too often while we in the church acknowledge that God as our creator knows what is right and good and best and, and for us as human beings, and we readily, we readily affirm uh, the authority of his word to us, on a moment to moment basis, our lives tend to be shaped more by our sinful impulses and preferences more than anything else. We're very quick to point out the, the evil failures of those around us, yet ignore and or deny the reality of our own sinful attitudes and actions. And, you know, the older I get, the more I realize that uh, what's absolutely essential to spiritual depth and development is honesty. Just brutal honesty. Honesty with God, honesty with ourselves, honesty with others. Because here's the deal what we do every day reveals who we are. As we've seen in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in the early church, And he explains to them how when we experience the grace of God through faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God comes into our lives in a very real way and begins to transform us. And there's evidence, Paul says, that 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 transformation is happening. He says, because here's the thing, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And Paul says, but by contrast, the Spirit of God produces things very different. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we hear these things, something deep inside of us tells us these things are right, these are healthy, these are beneficial, this list describes the kind of people we should be. And Paul says it's not only should be, we can be because the Spirit of God produces in us all of these things, it's not just one or two of them. All of these things are growing or should be growing uh, and manifesting themselves more and more in our lives, in our relationships, and in our church. And so we've, we've talked about the, the first eight virtues This morning, I want to talk about number nine and how the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And as we've done all along, we're going to to look at this virtue separate from the others, even though we've acknowledged uh, that that to be challenging because uh, all of these overlap so much. They're all so interdependent uh, and interconnected. After you study them, you realize you really can't have one, one without the other, right? And you think about it. Without love, for example, which is first on Paul's list, without love, there is little, if any, true joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness, faithfulness or gentleness. In the same way, if there's no self-control, how will any of those virtues be displayed consistently in our lives? And therefore, self-control, or, or what some today call self-regulation, is hugely important. You know, do we have it? do we exert it? Uh, In his book, We Have Met the Enemy, Self-Control in an Age of Excess, well-known journalist and author Daniel Axt writes about what he asserts to be the central problem of our time, which is a lack of self-control. In fact, he writes, nowhere is the dilemma of self-control more plainly visible than here in America, where the democratization of temptation has reached something like an apotheosis, which is just a fancy way of saying, as a culture that has reached the apex uh, of freedom and affluence, um, managing our desires, exerting self-control over them, is a pretty difficult thing to do. He writes, Life in this country has come to resemble a giant all-you-can-eat buffet, one that offers more calories, credit, sex, intoxicants, and just about anything else we can take to excess than at any other time in history. And then in summary, Acts issues this declaration. He says, ultimately the problem of self-control is the problem of the human condition, i.e. it's a problem for all of us. Now, I don't know anything about Daniel uh, Axt's background, but based on his writing, uh, I think it's safe to say he would agree with the Apostle Paul that self-control is an important and necessary um, thing for us as human beings, individually and, and as a culture. Yet it's a it's a deep seated problem of our culture, or at least the lack the lack of it is a deep seated problem. And the very idea of self control uh, implies a mastery over our human nature. You know, it's about the ability to manage well our natural desires, inclinations, impulses, and their lack of restraint. The Greek term that Paul uses here in Galatians five twenty three is actually a compound word. N in the Greek means in, kratia uh, is power, so literally the word means in power. Uh, and it's this idea of, of restraint, to have a grip on something, on, on yourself, on your passions, um, to have control of them. You know, it carries the idea of rising above our sinful impulses and our attitudes and desires and doing, doing what is right and what is helpful and healthy and beneficial not only for ourselves but for others. And just so you know, uh, the ancient Greeks had, a very, had very strong opinions on this particular uh, virtue. They considered self-control uh, something to be honored and exercised and had absolutely no respect for those who were weak-willed, those who showed lack of control over their passions. Um, when the Greeks wanted to illustrate self-control through art, for example, they would sculpt a statue of a man or a woman in perfect proportion. Because to them, self-control was was the proper ordering and balancing of the individual. Um, in Greco-Roman culture, self-control characterized athletes who uh, sought to be self-restrained and disciplined in order to achieve victory in the very intensely um, competitive Olympic games. And so, uh, l- you know, long before Paul's day, long before Paul, self-controlled w- control was praised by. Uh, great thinkers, writers, and philosophers. For example, Plato, in his work Laws, writes about self-control and about how a person's noble and less noble aspects are often at war with each other to figure out which one is gonna rule a person's life. And he says, you know, when when the nobler part brings the less noble noble part into subjection, then we say that a person exhibits self-mastery or self-discipline. And for Plato, this mastery over pleasures and desires came as a result of reason. In fact, uh, Plato believed that our base, what he would call our base animal urges, must be governed by reason. Otherwise, they will produce what he calls a feverish state in the soul, a city of pigs, which knows no limits. I.e., when we're not self-controlled, our life, our society uh, is like a chaotic pigsty. Socrates, as quoted by Plato in Laws, labeled self-control to be the foundational human virtue. Um, Xenophon, a Greek writer and philosopher, contemporary of Plato and Socrates, uh, in a work titled Memorabilia, asked the question, shall not every man hold self-control to be the foundation of all virtue and first lay this foundation firmly in his soul? For who without this can learn any good or practice it worthily? Uh, Aristotle, in his book on ethics, offers a classic discussion on self-control. He says, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies for the hardest victory is the victory over self. And then Aristotle goes on to to say that a self-controlled person is one who prevents desire from being the absolute dictator of his or her um, actions and lifestyle, in contrast to the person who does things that are wrong and destructive simply because he or she is kind of swept away by impulse and emotion and passion, even when they know it goes against their will and against their better judgment. Our first century Greek philosopher uh, Epictetus said, what lies in our power to do, lies in our power not to do. No man is free who is not master of himself. Now, that's probably enough ancient philosophy for the moment, but here's the point. Uh, Recognizing the need for self-control over our natural uh, and less than noble human attitudes, desires, behaviors, impulses was nothing new to first century Greco-Roman culture. Self-control was not an exclusively Christian concept. Uh, the Greeks and Romans considered self-control an important and honored virtue. The difference was this. They saw self-control as being something that you had to somehow, some way, muster up on your own through your own human reasoning, discipline, and effort. What's interesting to me is that Daniel asked who would agree with Paul that self-control is a problem of the human condition, would side with the Greek philosophers when it it comes to how to overcome the problem. Axt writes, while we don't have much to say over the desires we have, we certainly can decide which ones we prefer and then search for ways to act on that basis. He says self-regulation will always be a challenge, but if somebody's going to be in charge, it might as well be me. Translation, self-control is a matter of personal reason Discipline and effort. We're in charge, but the way the way I see it is this: If we're in charge, we're in trouble. At least I am, because I'm not that disciplined. I'm not that good. Uh, and really, that's what Paul is getting at when he writes to the church. He's telling us: He's saying, "Look, you can you can give it your best shot, but essentially, on your own." the immorality, the idolatry, the jealousy, the hatred, rage, envy, selfishness, all that that comes so easily to us because of our broken and sinful nature are going to be impossible to master merely by way of our own human reason, discipline, and effort. However, Paul says, when we place our faith in Jesus and experience the grace of God, the Spirit of God comes and begins to transform us, taking us from where we're not just indulging uh, the impulses and inclinations of our sin nature, and it begins to move us toward a different type of controlled existence. How does he do that? The Spirit teaches us what is right, what is true, what is good, what is healthy. and then he prompts us and empowers us to pursue those things more and more in our lives uh, and in our relationships. So you understand when when it, when it comes to self-control, in our world today, secularism tries to manage and legislate it by way of uh, education, social programming, and political policy. Uh, It's it's an attempt to externally control people for their own good. In a similar way, religion attempts to impose external rules and strict regulations in an effort to manage people's behavior. But biblical Christianity says, says trying to control our human desires and impulses and behaviors externally you know, through uh, governmental legislation or religious legalism, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work in the long run. Because the brokenness of our humanity is so deep, it runs so deep, the only way for true change and transformation to happen is by way of God's spirit working in us. Do you see the paradox in that? Um, Paul is saying that to be truly self-controlled, you must be spirit-controlled. To be self-controlled, you must be controlled. By God's Spirit. Or you could flip it around, you could say, the more the Spirit of God controls us, the more we're able to control ourselves. The whole, you know, this whole self-control deal is not about uh some power of our own making, something we just muster up on our own. It doesn't refer to an ability, an ability inherent to our humanness. It doesn't. This is this is this is an outside power coming in. This is Uh, it's divinity intersecting with humanity, the Spirit of God intersecting with our lives and, and, and making a difference in how we think, how we feel, and how we behave. And that's exactly what Jesus promised, right? Peter, Matthew, John, everyone who placed their faith in him, he promised that the counselor, the helper, the Holy Spirit of God would come and not only be with his followers, but actually indwell them. How did he put it? He said, the Spirit lives with you and will be in you. He promised you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. In short, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will infiltrate infiltrate your hearts, your minds, your everyday lives. And he will empower you, Jesus says, not, not only to talk about me, but to be more like me. And not only to share the story of grace, but to live out the story of grace for everybody to see. And remember, <clears throat> the, reason Paul that was, the reason Paul was clarifying all this uh, was because a group of false teachers, they were called Judaizers, which the word literally means to live like a Jew. And these these Judaizers, they were going around churches in Galatia, and they were telling people that, you know, believing in Jesus is fine, but it's just not enough. To become a Christian, you first have to become Jewish. You have to be morally good, religiously good. You've got to follow and keep all the religious laws to merit eternal life. That's what they were telling you people and, and it was causing all this disruption and confusion. For us uh, visual processors, here's the difference between what Jesus taught and what the Judaizers were saying. They told people faith in Jesus plus changing your behavior through human reason, work, and re- religious ritual will lead to eternal rescue. Jesus, But Jesus said, no, faith in me alone results in eternal rescue because of grace. Which then leads to change in behavior because of the spirit's indwelling and power to transform us two very different sequences and Paul is affirming Jesus in fact the whole the whole idea of spiritual transformation underpins this section of his letter a little earlier in chapter five, he said, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh or the sin nature for the flesh. The sin nature desires what's contrary to the spirit, the spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. And you know, <laughs> unless I'm way off on this, uh, every one of us in the room understand what he's getting at. We, we know what he's saying. We all know and experience this constant and relentless struggle in doing what is right versus doing what's wrong. In doing and choosing to do what we know is good and healthy and doing what is unhealthy and sadly destructive to ourselves and, and oftentimes destructive to those around us. So practically speaking, Paul is saying that with God's spirit at work within us, taking more and more control of our lives, the result will be our ever-increasing ability to exert self-control, i.e. saying no to that which is sinful and unhealthy and destructive and saying yes to what is right, what is true, what is healthy and what is good because the fruit of the Spirit, the outward manifestation of his presence and power in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But notice Paul goes on and ends verse 23 saying, against such things there is no law. What does he mean? He's simply simply saying you can't force this stuff. That's his point. Again, this is not about human effort. It's not about trying harder and harder and harder. Man-made rules and or religious regulations will not transform people from the inside out. You can't make somebody be loving, kind, peaceful, patient, patient and gentle. You can't do it. All of this becomes a reality in our lives and in our relationships and in our churches, not because of laws, but because of God's grace and his power to change us. And then Paul says something very interesting. He says, he writes, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh or the sin nature with its passions and its desires. Now, I've read that verse many times over the years, and I tend to you know, rush by it to get to what's next. So I slowed down recently in an attempt to, to think, what exactly is Paul saying here? And at first, at first it's a bit confusing, because clearly he's alluding to the death of our sin nature. I mean, he's basically suggesting that those who belong to Jesus, those who have put their faith in him and have experienced the grace of God, have executed their sin nature. But here's my problem: My sin nature isn't completely dead. I've been, a, I've been a Christian to follow Jesus a long time. My sin nature, with its passions and its desires, still rears its ugly head at times. It's still breathing. It's still kicking. I still struggle with it. I started wondering myself, well, is Paul suggesting here that that shouldn't be the case? Is, is he saying that this conflict, that this conflict should be over and done with? And if so, why does he refer to this putting to death of our sin nature in terms of crucifixion? Why not? Why not say those who belong to Jesus have with a dagger, you know, stabbed the flesh and killed the sin nature? Or those who belong to Jesus have with a sword lopped off the head of the sin nature and it is dead. Or in street vernacular say those who belong to Jesus and the family have lacked the sin nature, you know, and it sleeps with the fishes. I'm sorry, I read an article about mob crime today in the paper. <laughs> It's kind of on my brain. Um, but there are a lot of different ways that Paul could have said it, but he uses crucifixion as the imagery. Why is that? Here's why I think. I think Paul uses the image because it represents an excruciatingly slow and agonizing death. I mean, historical scholars will tell you crucifixion was not the most efficient way to execute a person. Depending on the exact method used, depending on the strength, health of the individual being crucified, it could take days for death to come. And so it seems to me that with this imagery, Paul is saying our sin nature is incredibly strong and a very powerful thing, which is true. Therefore, he's saying it's not easily or quickly uh, dispatched. it's an excruciatingly slow and agonizing spiritual process. But when we put our faith in Jesus, experience the grace of God, or infused with the Spirit, the execution, that putting to death of the sin nature begins. It's not a quick end. It's not an immediate deal. It is a slow, torturous struggle because our sin nature, with its passions and impulses and desires, just doesn't want to die. And if you, if you, doubt, if you doubt it, consider this. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to Christians in Galatia around 53 A.D. Four years later, in 57 A.D., he wrote a letter to Christians living in Rome. And in that document, he offers this personal confession. He says, I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I don't do the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do. This is what I keep on doing. Now... If I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Translation. Paul says, my sinful nature just doesn't want to die. It's being put to death. It's losing its strength. It's not as powerful as it used to be, but it's still breathing. It's still kicking. It's still with me, and I still struggle with doing what is right, true, good, helpful, and beneficial. In fact, a few verses later in the same letter, uh, Paul says, what a, "What a wretched man I am, What a twisted individual I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And can I just tell you how grateful I am that Paul wrote that, that confession? Because, I mean, he's speaking directly to me. He's speaking to my dilemma. He's speaking to the dilemma we all face, which is this agonizing struggle between what God's spirit is leading us to do, what we know is right and what our sin nature wants us to do. You know, when Paul became a follower of Jesus, um, there were some things that cha- some changes that took place in his, his life right away, but even he struggled with his sin nature on an ongoing basis. And that's gonna be, if that's true for him, it's gonna be true for us. There are no perfect apostles. There are no perfect pastors. There are no, there are no perfect people. There are no perfect Christians. But here's the thing, if we have embraced Jesus by faith and experienced God's grace and are being led by his indwelling spirit, our sin nature is being put to death. It might be slow, but it's happening. And there will be a level of transformation taking place in your life where obedience to God becomes more the norm than the exception. And that change uh, will be evident. And it will cause people around you those who know you to say something's different. Uh, Something has changed. Something is changing with them. Hate is turning to love. Misery is turning to joy. Anxiety is turning to peace. Rage is turning to patience and forgiveness, indifference to kindness and generosity, rebellion to goodness, disloyalty to faithfulness, arrogance to gentleness, impulsiveness to self-control. Is that happening for you? We've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit for several weeks now, and the whole reason Paul uses this language is because in the ancient Near Eastern world of of the Jewish people, the Greeks, the Romans, most everyone understood farming and the things associated with it. Planting, harvesting, crop production, all of it. Paul also uses the metaphor because uh, of its simplicity. It's not rocket science. You know, Even kids grasp the idea of fruit. But as we've learned in the study, the biggest reason Paul uses fruit as a metaphor is because Jesus used it, same term, same imagery. He said this to his followers, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. Jesus also said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples i.e., what you do every day proves who you are or whose you are. And Paul is simply affirming that. He's affirming Jesus' teaching. His overall message in this letter is that when we experience God's grace through faith in Jesus, who offered himself for our sin, to rescue us from evil, judgment, and death, to give us life everlasting, the Spirit of God comes and begins to transform us, producing tangible, experiential, observable evidence of his presence and power in our lives. The question for us, both as individuals and as a community, is this, is it happening? Do you see the evidence of spiritual transformation in your life, in your relationships? Be honest about it, there's no growth in pretense. Pretending doesn't bring about spiritual depth and development, only honesty. Honesty with God, honesty with ourselves, honesty with others. So be honest. Is it happening? Is the change happening? Is the transformation happening? And if not, why not? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. The ever increasing ability to do what God says is right, true, helpful, healthy. And beneficial, not only for yourself, but for others. Let's pray. Our Father, it is so easy for us to walk through life every day and and just be so absorbed with activities and schedules, going here, there, and everywhere that we we don't we don't face the truth. We don't take time to assess. our own lives. And it's so easy for us to live um, uh, in denial or even ignorance. But I pray that you would not allow that to be the case anymore for us. For you call us to honesty, brutal honesty, with you, our God, and with ourselves. And so I pray this morning that you would help us, help us do just that, to be honest. Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us to face the reality of our lives, of how we're living them. What our relationships are like. What are we doing every day? And I I ask that your spirit would reveal to us areas of our lives that may be out of control. And I don't know what what that is for all of us. Maybe it's anger. Maybe for whatever reason, we have this seething uh, undercurrent of anger that just... Rears up at a moment's notice, and we kind of pop off on people and we abuse people with our, our words and mistreat them. Maybe that's out of control for some of us. Maybe when it comes to money, spending is out of control. Maybe when it comes to money, greed is out of control. I don't know. Maybe it's bitterness, our inability to forgive. I just ask that you would help us to see clearly right in this moment, what areas of our life do we not have have control of? And we ask you not only to show us, but to help us gain control. Not only just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of those around us. I pray that you would speak to us and speak the truth to us and we would respond. In Jesus' name. Amen. You stand with me. You know, the line in that song, I'm broken inside. Do we do we really believe that? Do, do we understand the level and, and the degree of our human brokenness? Because that's the kind of the first step in uh, in dealing with reality. You know, here's the thing: secularism says. Yeah, we're broken. We're messed up people. But if we have enough education, if we throw enough money at policies um, and legislate enough laws, we can save ourselves. We can save the world. We can all get together. We can all be happy. How is that working out for us? Not so much, right? And then you have religion. Religion says, well, yeah, we're broken and we have this this messed up relation with with God, but if we can just prove our worthiness to him, we can be good enough, if we can keep enough of these, some rules and do enough ritualistic things and all of that, maybe we can prove just how good we are to God and and then maybe, just maybe, uh, he'll rescue us. Do you see those two extremes? And do you see where Christianity falls right smack dab in the middle? Because Christianity says, yeah, we're broken, and our brokenness is so deep, we can't save ourselves. We can't help ourselves. We can't be good enough. We all fail, and therefore we all need forgiveness. We need the grace of God. We need Jesus, and the good news that he came to live the perfect life we could never live, and he died the death we all deserve to die to give us life if we just believe, and that's what it means to be a Christian. And uh, I hope you understand that. Because, you know, secularism will leave you depressed and religion will leave you depleted. Christianity is all that, it makes sense and it it fills your deepest human needs because it's true. And uh, if you have questions about it, talk to somebody you know from Parkview. Ask them about their story, about how Jesus made a difference in their life or following the service. You can come up, talk to some of our prayer team folks it will be up here. But um, I hope hope you'll understand the difference between those things. I also hope you come back next week. I know we finished the last in the list of Fruit of the Spirit, but um, what Paul does next is he wraps them all together and he says, okay, so here are all these things. This is what it looks like in community. And so we're gonna take a look at what he says and then we'll wrap up this series next week, okay? In the meantime, I hope you have a great week and uh, and I hope you can come back with us next Sunday. Let me pray for you. And now, Lord, I I pray that... um, that we would go out of this place as your people, um, grateful for your forgiveness and grace in our lives. And we ask that your spirit would pro- produce in us those things, love, joy, peace, all those things um, that represent who you are. And as they're expressed and demonstrated in and through our lives, to our friends and family members and neighbors, co-workers, whoever may those things in us point them to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.